right now is a moment for Christians to lean into cultural engagement. And that means every Christian. Don't think you should outsource this job, you know, to Aaron or to, you know, Jim, you know, Jim Dobson or somebody like that. Like, it is all of our jobs to wrestle and help each other through this particular cultural moment. Welcome to the Narrative Podcast. This is CCV President Aaron Baer here with my co-host David Mahan. Uh, back again uh, on this fifth volume of the Narrative. Uh, really looking forward to, to all we have for you. Actually, we have a, a special episode for you this week. Uh, actually, a couple days ago, we had uh, John Stone Street, the president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, uh, come to town for two different events we did. Uh, one was a, a conference for Christian school administrators, our Ohio Christian Education Network, uh, put on a conference. And, and actually, that was a really beautiful event because, you know, OSEN, the, the network of schools that we, we lead at CCV, um, is a, a network of evangelical and Catholic schools. You know, not, not, not two groups that normally uh, get together. Uh, so we brought in John Stone Street uh, to, to speak, but we also brought in a group called Ruah Woods uh, that teaches what's called Theology of the Body, uh, a, a doctrine and theology that uh, Pope John Paul II had written um, that not a lot of evangelical, evangelicals have been exposed to, um, and not a lot of Catholics have been exposed to the Colson Center. Um, and it was a really great day of uh, just kind of sharing and fellowshipping with each other. Um, and, and again, we didn't agree on everything, um, but uh, the big picture of, you know, God made our bodies with a purpose. Uh, he made kids' bodies with a purpose. And how do we raise up the next generation uh, to counter this culture that says our bodies are, are nothing? They can be whatever we want, whatever we can imagine them to be or uh, unborn children or just a clump of cells, um, you know, how do we counter that? And both, uh, there's some great teachings out of both the Catholic Church and the Evangelical Church that are responding to that. So we had John in to speak at that conference, uh, but then the night before we did an event uh, with Tree of Life Christian Schools uh, over at uh, Christian Assembly in Columbus uh, on what we called Kids and Culture, the Clash for the Next Generation's Hearts and Minds. Uh, and John Stone Street gave a, about a 40-minute talk uh, there that really just, um, as only John can, um, unpacks all the different um, ideas and worldviews that are kind of undergirding uh, the, the place we're in. Uh, uh, David, you, you were there for it. I mean, what, what, was, what did you think after John's talk there at Christian Assembly? I think it was good for, uh, for everybody there. You know, John was amazing for sure. Um, you know, he's got his, his, his vibe he gets into. But I really enjoyed the panel, um, you know, having the public policy side there with you, having, um, you know, Todd uh, Mara there from, you know, just the principal of a, of a Christian school side. And then, you know, so you got the worldview, you got the actually what's going on behind the scenes, and then you actually got the practicality of what's going on inside the classrooms. Uh, you know, plus, I think the one that topped it off was uh, Maria. You know, she's the unspoken hero of the entire thing. But uh, plus, you mentioned what your um, nickname was. I can't. Um, you want to bring that up? or we'll, we'll talk about that later. But it was just a, it was a great event. Since college, she's called me A.B., and that that's just not, you know. That, but she said A.B., kind of like baby, but it was like A.B., but I thought it was precious. Um, but, you know, it was just a great event, I, you know, well attended. Seemed like it was over 200 people in there, just a great, uh, a great atmosphere in there. But talking about what the future looks like, 
um, you know, for for Christian youth, uh, really for children, uh, period, if we don't engage, just phenomenal. And I, and I think a lot of folks just kind of just looking across the room, uh, it really hit them to where they started thinking, I think, a little bit more than usual. Yeah. And so so we have the entire event uh, posted on YouTube um, that uh, on Center for Christian Virtues YouTube page. Uh, but for this episode of the narrative, we're going to post John's lecture uh, for for you to to, to hear uh, and enjoy. And again, I'd really encourage uh, if you're not uh, getting the the daily breakpoints uh, that that John and the Colson Center put, produce that are often written by my wife uh, Maria. Um, I, I highly recommend it. It is um, just the kind of content that is hard to find um, and does just a good job of, uh, I, you know, one of the things that they'll talk about a lot, we talk about on this podcast quite a bit, uh, is, uh, you know, world, a worldview is the assumptions we make about, the, or rather, a cult, culture is, is formed and what, what makes culture is it's the assumptions we make about the world around us, right? Um, and uh, what, what Colson Center does so well is they, they question those assumptions and they, they pick them apart to help you understand what are the worldviews that are making those up. Uh, and so if you're not getting Breakpoint uh, every, every week, you got to go uh, you got to go sign up for that at the Colson Center's website, and you, they also have a, a podcast uh, that they do weekly, where those daily, actually, those those breakpoint commentaries are released. Uh, it's about a five minute podcast uh, each day, and then every Friday, that's the radio show that my wife Maria and John uh, Stone Street host together. Uh, that's po- probably about an hour or so long podcast. And one, one thing you brought up that that I said in the past is that is that worldview is the lens. Through which you see the world, and and so many times, you know, you could be sitting in church and even talking to family, even sometimes talking to your children, and the issue come up, and you're wondering like, why don't like first of all, I didn't know we didn't see this the same way, and then how in the world couldn't we see it the same way? We go to the same church, we sit at the same dinner table, but I think it really kind of exposed um, what how culture is so uh, pivotal in affecting our worldview. And, and why it is that so many times we experience conflict, uh, even with friends and family, when we're talking about issues that we should all really agree on. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, it was it was really stunning, especially, you know, John, and you'll you'll hear this uh, in, in the in, in John's talk uh, uh, for the second part of the, the podcast today. But at one point, John asked uh, asked everyone in the room, you know, a, a, an older crowd there, um, certainly more 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 generation, more, more David's generation than anyone else's, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> no, but <laughs> I just you see you see it going well. No, but but it was a, a little bit of an older crowd that that you know have, they have more grown kids or grandkids. And at one point, um, John asked, "How many people know what the word cis means, as in cisgender?" Um, and you know, f- unfortunately for guys like David and I that. Uh, that live and breathe this. This is a word we've been associated with for a long time. And, you know, probably less than a quarter of the room had ever heard that term before. You know, that word, especially for the younger generation, especially for kids in school today, is second nature to them, right? And this isn't this isn't a slang word, right? This isn't like, you know, uh, I, I, I remember um, when I was at uh, Center for Arizona Policy, uh, one time I, I said, oh, snap, at something. And, you know, Kathy Herod was like, what is that? What, are you talk- what does that mean? 
And you know, that was that it's that's slang. You know, that's just nonsense things that, that the kids say. This isn't this is a, a word that academics are using today and are putting in curriculum uh, and, and instructional materials for for kids in uh, in schools today. And uh, again, it to your point, David, like the 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 different worldviews right now that are clashing is, is massive. Um, so I'm really excited for you to, to, to hear that discussion. Um, and, and again, go if, if you're not already uh, taken in all the Colson Center's uh, resources, uh, I, I encourage you to do so. Um, but in, in just a little bit of time here before we go to John's uh, conversation he had, um, I, I wanna, we want to touch base on some of the news and really just one big news item in particular right now, and that is um, the, and again, you know, we know we have listeners all over the country and a lot of times we'll, we'll use Ohio news. Um, and what just happened here at the Ohio state school board is it's obviously an Ohio specific issue, but it's an issue that's a microcosm of a bigger issue going on all over the country. Um, and Dave, do you want to kind of explain the situation of what the Ohio state school board, uh, was considering and then what they did or didn't do yesterday? Yeah, so um, this is the second uh, meeting they had of, of um, the other one was back in September. It was Brendan Shea, member, uh, board member Brendan Shea uh, had a resolution uh, to support parents, schools, and districts in rejecting harmful, coercive, and burdensome gender identity, uh, identity uh, policies. Um, it, uh, it really shocked me. When I, when I first heard that he, that he uh, put this up, I was like, man, you know, is he... He really think he's got 10 people over there uh, out of a group of 19 leftists and sometimes cowards um, that uh, that will give this a, a yes vote. And um, and he felt very strongly, apparently, that he could. Um, I, I guess the first hearing, uh, there was a total of about 150 between the two hearings. And the first one seemed to be, uh, from what I'm hearing, pretty heavy on the, um, um, those that were opposing the resolution, but yesterday was a little different story. Um, yesterday, it was most of the folks in there um, tend to be for the resolution. It was literally a three-ring circus. Um, you, uh, somebody took a picture of out the outside. There were just like maybe six protesters, and that's only because all the the activists were inside. Um, you had guys uh, with lipsticks and, and dresses uh, just hanging out in the, in the women's bathroom. Uh, and, you know, and it was just really intimidating. I, I, we had three women, three uh, mothers that came to testify and they were followed to their car, um, you know, by a guy, um, you know, in a dress, intimidating. Uh, they, they went up the elevator and then boom, the elevator opens and there he is again. I'm standing uh, just waiting for them and he, he followed them to the car. So you'll never see any of this on the news. The news was it was it was packed. Uh, Channel Six was in there um, the entire day. I was there from probably eight in the morning to seven thirty at night, waiting for a scheduled vote uh, that they never had. Um, they clearly were intimidated. The board was. Um, you know, there was initially, I believe, eight of the members that were for it, and they they lost one of those. I'm not going to mention who that one was. Uh, they lost one of those, and they basically voted to punt it downfield um, and assign it to a, a, what they call an executive committee uh, where it will die. Um, there's not enough time uh, on the schedule, and then that, that actually came up, Aaron, was, you know, can we at least identify, you know, some special meetings that we'll have and so that we can be assured that all of these 150 people that came out here in force and wasted all this time 
uh, will we, we, we'll get a vote. You know, they'll, 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 there'll be up or down vote on this. And it never, it never came to pass to, to get that date. So it, it's most likely going to die on the vine. I do, you know, shout out to, to Brendan Shea for sure. Um, he stood his ground. He, he garnered support. There were state legislators in there. Click showed up. Uh, uh, Reggie showed up. Reggie Stolzfus, um, you know, had, had parents and even uh, Helena, uh, the, the, the young lady who uh, testified for the SAFE Act, detransitioner, she showed up. Powerful testimony. Your boy was in the house. I, I, um, no reason why we shouldn't have had a vote yesterday. You know, I think the to me, David, the, the first thing that came to mind uh, after seeing everything the way it unfolded yesterday um, was something you and I have been talking quite a bit about, you know, and obviously we do talk a lot about worldview. Today's conversation we're going to have on the narrative is about worldview. Um, but in many ways, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that's even more important right now than worldview is just courage because the, the resolution that they were considering, right. Um, was not a complicated thing, right? It, it's, it's, it's very straightforward. Should the Biden administration be able to deny poor kids free food, government-assisted food, if their school doesn't let boys and girls sports or if their school doesn't let boys and girls bathrooms or private facilities or to sleep with girls uh, in overnight uh, school stays, those types of things? Um, it, it's not a, this, these aren't hard questions, right? Um, they're, they're very straightforward. Um, and you have a number of people uh, who profess Christ uh, on, on the state school board um, who in private uh, would clearly recognize that this transgender ideology is, is awful and harmful and destroying children, and it's wrong to do these things. Um, but when the spotlight shines, uh, they, they stick their head in the sand. You know, in my testimony, and again, it was only three minutes, there was no Q&A, uh, but I thought I needed to make the point that, it, you know, we can argue, you know, studies, this study, that study, Trevor Report, 28,000 of their closest friends, you know, completing anonymous surveys, uh, you know, is, is uh, you know, is this a healthy move or not a healthy move? I mean, just stupid surveys like that. If any teacher that was in that board meeting that had a student turn in uh, and cite some stuff from one of those, they would get an F. Um, it, it was ridiculous. However, but I wanted to show them that that while other nations are pulling back, Finland, UK, uh, you know, we talk about what London just did with the Tavistock, you know, shutting down longest and oldest clinic uh, and now being sued by a thousand parents. Um, it's not just because of the hormonal stuff and the surgeries. Um, the, the state school board needs to realize that they are complicit in the same kind of gender, gender affirming therapy that they call it, that, that is ex completely experimental and harmful. They are complicit because they are actively engaging in the first step of a four-step process, and that's social, uh, social transition or social affirmation. So um, that seemed to hit when I say that. Uh, you know, it's not just being nice and kind. No, you are complicit in transitioning children. That's right. And, and, and that's the... Um that, that's the frustration today, and, and I'll say what, what we experienced at the school board, you know, talking with friends and colleagues all over the country, they're, they're seeing similar issues, right? Um, and, and there are certainly places where we have victories, where, where states are, are, are uh, taking bold action on this. You know, for those of you who didn't see, uh, go look up the, the Florida Surgeon General uh, was just on Tucker Carlson's show earlier this week. 
um, doing incredible things on this issue. Um, and, and so there are signs of, of courage. And, and what you see in those situations and, and what we, I was hoping we'd see with the school board is uh, when you stand up, yeah, there, there's in the, in the Twitter bubble, in the media bubble, you're going to get beat up and, and you know, there's going to be a handful of protesters there. Uh, but people are grateful for you, right? And it's ultimately the right thing to do. Um, but unfortunately today, um, there's too many people that, that are, are, that are in positions of, uh, of influence that are, are too easily scared. They, they just want to hold their seat, uh, and, and get to come and give their accolades, um, and not actually do something helpful for families. I, I think we need all of us or, you know, a lot of folks today are frustrated, um, uh, I know many of the, the school board members, those seven uh, that wanted to vote this thing, um, you know, up or down are very frustrated. Um, you know, it, it is courage, um, but it's not just the school board. I mean, it, it's state reps. It's, it's Republicans that you elected, family, um, that uh, that could be passing all this. If we would if we would pass 454, House Bill 454 to say fact, this wouldn't even be an issue. We could just squash it all. Um, you know, I just saw a Reuters report. Uh, where they were talking about, you know, the same children's hospital that Tucker was talking about, um, uh, Akron Children's Hospital. Uh, there was a direct quote from Dr. Cole, who said that at, uh, when he was first working with a 13-year-old uh, boy wanting to transition to a girl, he said at the first meeting uh, at the Akron Clinic, Dr. Cole was blunt with the boyers about the uh, unknowns related to puberty blockers and brain development. And he said, quote, we don't know the long-term effects on cognitive function. It could make it better, worse. We have no idea. Um, if that's not the definition of experimental, I don't know what is. And we didn't hear it in the article, but I would bet you, I would bet you that that little 13-year-old girl who started wanting to transition at early ages got the support to do so from her school and from her therapist. That's right. That, that's where all this comes from. Where th This isn't stuff that's picked up on its own. I mean, there, there's a reason why, you know, I'll just say, and we got to get to John's uh, conversation, but I, I just want to throw one thing in here. Maybe the one of the hardest arguments that I feel like people struggle with when talking about this issue um, is the suicide issue, right? Um, it's it's kind of the trump card that the left uses on why we have to do all this uh, transgender uh, medicine in, in, in hospitals and education in schools as well. You know, if we don't let kids transition, uh, they're going to kill themselves, right? Um, which, one, is uh, a just a, a, an insane thing for, for adults to be um, bullied and held hostage by children um, to for a child to do what they want, uh, to let a child do what they want and, and, and do something that's against their own interest. But but even even the premise of that 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 point, um, you know, basically what they're arguing when they say that is that when a when a person is oppressed, they are more likely to kill themselves. That That is what they're saying, and that transgender oppression is so bad they're going to kill themselves. Well, first and foremost, the suicide rates that we're seeing in the transgender community are astronomical, right? Um, we, we've never seen suicide rates this, this, at this level. And so really what, what they're claiming is that transgender people are, are more oppressed today than anybody else in American history. Now, just think for two seconds of why that is an incredibly stupid thing to say that that transgender people in America in 2022 right are are more are, are more oppressed right and 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 then they're 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 so not not only is is this this 
idea that oppression equals suicide, which again, we didn't see suicide rates like this in the black community during slavery. We didn't see suicide rates like this in the uh, Jewish community during World War II, during the Holocaust. It, it's These things have never followed, right? We don't see suicide rates like this in the uh, low-income community today, right? Go out to the hilltop right now or go off to any inner city area. We're not seeing suicide rates like this uh, in, in those areas where their lives are, they genuinely don't know where their food's going to come from and they're living in abusive homes. That's right. You, you can't, it, it does not follow that oppression equals suicide. It just doesn't, right? Um, and but the second thing about this too is there there that, that that just falls apart is that their whole premise is that somehow it's harder to be a transgender person in America today than ever before, which again we we weren't using any any of these terminology. Preferred pronouns are industry standard in corporate America today. Nine hundred percent spike in kids uh, identifying as uh, as trans. It's ridiculous. It, it, it's a social contagion. You can't say it's anything other than nurture. Um, to, that 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 has has brought this along. Now, again, this is where we need to to step back from the 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 macro and get to the personal uh, and get to that that uh, the the one to one conversation. Does that mean that these children aren't sincerely feeling these feelings? Uh, no, no, absolutely. We we know the we know these kids are in traumatic situations, um, but the the diagnosis the culture is offering is actually making it worse. Um, the solution's worse than the than the problem itself. That's right. No, that's right. And so, um, obviously, it takes a lot of prayer, it takes a lot of courage, um, and uh, and you know, as we say at CCB, a, a loss is just um, for a day. We're we're back at the fight, um, and and ultimately, this was something that uh, we were helping friends with. Our focus is still at the Safe Act and passing the Backpack Bill and seeing these bills passed across the country. So we're going to keep doing that, um, but we got to get we got to dive deeper into this whole worldview that's pushing these thoughts on kids, uh, and and so we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a break here, uh, and when we come back, you're gonna hear uh, John Stone Streets talk uh, at our Kids and Culture event uh, earlier this week here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and and again during the break, if you can go and uh, go give us a, a, a five star rating uh, of the narrative. Uh, and and help us reach more people. We'll be right back. I'm about to let y'all see my new office, man. This is nice. Like, <laughs> I had to I had to pay rent to Bischoff, but uh, but I'm in here, y'all. And we're gonna we're, 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 that that's for now. We, we, the broom closet's getting cleaned out right now. So yeah, we'll be, we'll be right back here on the narrative. Christian business owners today face more unique and challenging threats than ever before, as corporate America and chambers of commerce fall prey to woke capitalism. Christians in the marketplace need an advocate to protect their First Amendment freedoms. As Ohio's only Christian Chamber of Commerce, the Christian Business Partnership stands in the gap to advocate for, to educate, and to celebrate Christian business owners. Joining the partnership also allows businesses to provide their employees with health care insurance, workers' compensation, and exclusive banking and educational discounts. To find out more and to join, go to ccv.org cbp. That's ccv.org cbp. Welcome back to The Narrative. This is Center for Christian Virtue President Aaron Baer. Uh, and just uh, the conversation you're about to hear, or the, the talk you're about to hear, is from John Stone Street, the president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, uh, on October 11th here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, at our Kids and Culture event, uh, the, uh, the Clash for the Next Generation's Hearts and Minds. 
Uh, it's a phenomenal conversation. Again, if you aren't already getting the Colson Center's uh, daily breakpoints uh, and listening to the, the uh, breakpoint this week, uh, podcast that ho- that is uh, hosted by my wife uh, Maria Bear. You got to make sure you go get that wherever you get this narrative podcast. Uh, but I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. The reason uh, I am invested in the conversation that we want to have tonight is is not only because I believe in organizations like CCV. I believe in institutions of Christian uh, of Christian education, especially those that are doing it really really well, like Tree of Life Christian School. Uh, and, uh, but because I'm not personally invested in Ohio, I am interested in this because this is a culture-wide uh, issue that we have, or a set of issues really, that we've got to be able to unlock and understand and walk our way through. And for me, it matters because uh, I'm, I'm a dad. I have four kids. Uh, I have kids that range from uh, a senior in high school to a kindergartner. Uh, in fact, my senior drove my kindergartner to his first day of school. Isn't that just really... I have three daughters, Abigail, Anna, and Allie, and they're 17, 15, and 13. And then we have an eight-year gap. And the reason we have an eight-year gap is because my daughters went on a six-year prayer journey, uh, and they committed to pray that God would give them a little brother. That was not the prayer that my wife and I shared with them, and God loves them better than us. And so we have a little boy named Hunter. So if you're keeping score at home, that's Abigail, Anna, Allie, A-A-A, and then Hunter, H, Ah, which is pretty much like our family. Um, kind of goes. So, uh, but, I, but I care about these issues. And, and listen, the, the thing we need to understand uh, is that this is a, a culture that in many ways disproportionately targets young people, children, with bad ideas. There's a saying uh, that many of you have heard before. It doesn't originate with with us. Richard Weaver uh, wrote a book called Ideas Have. Anybody know how, how that finishes? Ideas Have? Consequences. Ideas have consequences. What we often talk about at the Colson Center is ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And you also need to understand, too, that ideas have contexts. In certain contexts, in certain cultural moments, uh, certain ideas are more impactful than in other times. And we live in a particular cultural moment in which certain ideas are having an incredible amount of influence, an incredible amount of sway. I mean, anybody else here dizzy by how quickly things went from being unthinkable to unquestionable like overnight? Yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. And it's really important to understand what we mean when we talk about the culture losing its mind. Right? Because, you know, I don't know that there is a word uh, that is more used and less defined than the word culture. And a lot of times as Christians, because we're oftentimes known for just all the things we're mad at, then culture is used by us as a synonym for all the things that we don't like in the world. And, and, and I understand where that definition comes from, but we need to be a little bit more precise because the cultural challenges of this particular moment are different than the ones uh, when we were growing up. And, and that includes whoever we is in this room. I look around and I see, you know, old millennials and, and young Xers and old Xers and boomers and, and everybody in between. And, and, and just things 
one of the features of living in the early 21st century is just how quickly uh, culture can move, how quickly culture can change, and how quickly things can become, go from moving, uh, be, sorry, go from being unthinkable to unquestionable seemingly overnight. So we need to understand what are those ideas, what are those uh, visions of life in the world that are so powerful and influential in this particular cultural moment. And, but we also need to understand too that we're living downstream from something that's been taking place now for decades. And, and a lot of the ideas that are so influential and powerful uh, uh, right now are, are, are kind of children themselves of ideas that started, you know, 30, 40, 50, 70, 80 years ago, depending on if you want to, you know, w- at what level do you want to start? Um, and, and that is we are living downstream uh, from probably the most successful cultural revolution that the world has ever seen. Uh, several uh, years ago, and I, it's funny, I was talking uh, uh, earlier with, with someone and thinking, you know, I, I was, uh, three years ago usually means five because COVID, you just lose two years, right? So I'm pretty sure it was actually about five years ago. I was in Florida speaking to a group, and I, I asked, and this is a risky thing to do, and I won't do it here, who's the oldest person in the room? There's a 97-year-old gentleman in the room, 97. And, and so we talked about it, and we thought about, you know, how many different Uh, things, culturally speaking, that this man had seen over the course of his lifetime. Some of the most significant events in world history, incredible shifts in geography and and nation states and all kinds of different things. And one of the features of the last 200 years has been revolutions, right? A lot of times they're political revolutions, but of all the revolutions that man had experienced or seen or lived during the time of, during the course of those almost 10 decades, the most successful in terms of the one that has shifted our world top to bottom in such dramatic ways, and it's hard to imagine, particularly today, a single aspect of culture that has not been in some way shaped and influenced by this very successful cultural revolution. Uh, And that's why I call it the most successful social revolution that we've seen in our lifetime, and that's the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution is a vast and and diverse set of ideas that has changed the world upside down. Now, if you hear that and you think of the sexual revolution purely in terms of morality, in other words, that certain sexual behaviors used to be off limits and now they're okay, and certain things that used to be considered good behavior is now considered bad behavior and vice versa, well, that's part of it, but that's a very, very small part of it. The The moral changes of the sexual revolution, that's not the root of the issue at all. That's just the fruit. The root of the sexual revolution are not its ideas about right and wrong, but it's fundamentally its ideas about what it means to be human. It's, it's ideas about who we are as human beings. What makes us who we are? What gives us our value? What is the meaning and purpose of life? And see, what's happened is, is that we live now downstream from the sexual revolution. And I, I, I you know, it's, it's a, it would be a fascinating history to study if it had not been so dramatically consequential for people involved. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. The disproportionate victims of the sexual revolution have always been children. The disproportionate victims of the sexual revolution have always been children. From the very beginning to today. And we live now downstream from all the things that have been changed. And that's why we're seeing such a collision right now having to do with children. 
What are children's rights? What are parents' rights? What are best for kids? We don't even agree on what health care is or what health is for kids. You see what I mean? It's been a dramatic shift, and we have to understand it, I think, in order to understand what's, what's going on. There's one more thing I was going to say. Hold on. It was going to change your life. Give me a second. Um, da, 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 da. I'll come back to it. I'm sure it'll, it'll hit me. Um, oh, here it is. Um, so, for example, when I say that the disproportionate uh, victims of the sexual revolution have been kids, there's been a, 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 a line, a promise uh, that proponents of different stages of the sexual revolution have continued to kind of propagate and to repeat. And it's never been true, but we've said it over and over and over and over again. And that is the kids will be fine. The kids will be fine, right? How many different versions of that line have we heard over the last six, seven decades? The kids will be fine, right? Um, For example, some of you live through the legalization of no-fault divorce, Right? It's not really that old in terms of American culture. It only dates back to the 70s. And what was the promise? The version of the kids will be fine then was kids will be better with happy parents than married parents. Right? What kids need is for their parents to be happy, not for their parents to be married. Now that was said and that was repeated and that was claimed. So advocates of no-fault divorce laws really pushed that out and said the kids will be fine because they'll have happy parents. And, and, and that's what they really need, not married parents. And we said it over and over and over and over again as if it were true without any evidence or data to back it up. Well now 20 and 30 years later, 40 years later, 50 years later, we have the data. In fact, a Jewish researcher named Judith Wallerstein from Harvard was commissioned by a foundation to study the impact of no-fault divorce on the children uh, impacted by no-fault divorce. And uh, she's been study- she studied this over the course of 20 years before publishing the book, which was called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. And her conclusion was, guess what? The kids aren't fine. In fact, in most situations, kids don't need happy parents. What really does them good is if they have married parents. Now, that's not the case when it comes to abuse or some sort of danger. Don't don't hear me say that. In other words, there are exceptions to that rule. But in other words, that thing that we said over and over and over again, that the kids will be fine, the kids will be fine, the kids will be fine, turns out that they weren't. And then we can update that and talk about, well, you, you remember that remarkable moment? Some of you might remember this, that remarkably silly moment in American political history, and you're like, you have to be more specific, Um, when um, Murphy Brown, do you guys remember Murphy Brown? And Dan Quayle got in a fight. Do you remember this? A a real-life presidential candidate and somebody who doesn't actually exist got in a fight. It was bizarre, right? And that was, of course, over intentionally single parenting, right? The New New York Times Magazine, 40 years, sorry, 20 years after that one, uh, that whole scenario happened. And if you don't know that story, basically there was this kind of storyline as part of the show of Murphy Brown of a career woman, single, wanting to have it all, intentionally having a child uh, as a single mom. And Dan Quayle on the campaign tra- trail said something about it. He got absolutely excoriated and the media just really attacked him on it. And it probably cost him the election, actually. Either that or he didn't know how to spell potato. But um, one of those two things. But what happened was 20 years after that the headline of the New York Times magazine was turns out the New York magazine uh, said turns out Dan Quayle was right it's fascinating again it was another way of saying no the kids will be fine the kids will be fine kids don't need two parents they don't need a mom and a dad they just need a loving parent and of course we're still having versions of that conversation today 
Now, my point is at every stage of the sexual revolution, no matter if we're talking about the early days ideologically, we're talking about the early days culturally, or where we're at now kind of downstream from all that, uh, the, the disproportionate victims of the sexual revolution have been kids. So if we really want to understand what this is saying, kids and culture, the clash for the next generation's hearts and minds, we can talk about a lot of stuff, but if we really want to get to the heart of it, we've got to get to the heart of how the sexual revolution has created a cultural moment uh, that is so challenging for children. And, and I want to walk through that by framing it in terms of three stories. These are three very recent stories, three stories uh, that I have come across um, over the last... Let me do the math here really quickly. Less than a year, probably six or seven months. But to me, these three stories kind of frame out some of the real challenges that kids face. And then I'll do that, and then we can have a conversation uh, with you guys, and I think with Aaron, and that's the plan, right? Is that the plan? Okay. All right, so here's the first story. The first story is actually about a colleague of mine, a colleague of mine who uh, lived in Colorado Springs. Uh, Her and her husband and children were at a charter school there in Colorado Springs, and then they moved away to a different state. I won't tell you which state it was, but it was Minnesota. And then they came, this actually isn't about Minnesota, it's about Colorado Springs. They came back to Colorado Springs and wanted to re-enroll their children in the same charter school. Now what had happened in the three or four years as, uh, that they had been in Minnesota had been a lot of the things that we had seen, a lot of the things that many people woke up and realized, uh, particularly, for example, if you lived in Loudoun County, Virginia, uh, that something was happening in the schools with the school boards, were having conversations, and, and, and people were concerned. Well, in this particular case, it had to do with the gender conversation. And... Uh, So my colleague sat down with the principal and as they were seeking to re-enroll their children back into the same charter school and said, what do you guys, how do you guys handle the gender conversation? And his line was, it's not something we talk about. This is something that actually is the parent's job to determine what's right and what you want to teach your kids. We won't address the idea of gender identity in our classes. Now you think the conversation's over, but my colleague was really wise. And instead of letting that go, she said something else. She said, well, what happens if there is a student who identifies as a gender that isn't in alignment with their biological sex and they demand my, my child use those pronouns? And the principal said, well, then they'd have to use the pronouns. I said, well, what if they didn't, they didn't think that they could because of their beliefs? I said, well, then we'd have a disciplinary conversation with me. Now, isn't that an interesting situation? In other words, what it tells us is, in many ways, is when it comes to the, the gender ideology issue that is very prevalent in so many places, that one of the approaches that's largely been taken, including by this particular charter school, in which it wasn't an issue just four years ago, is we're not going to have the conversation, but we are going to assume the conclusion. Does that make sense? We're not going to have the conversation anymore. We're not going to have a conversation about what's right and what we should believe and what we shouldn't believe, but we're going to assume what the conclusion is. And if you don't assume the same conclusion, then you can't be a part of this particular community or you face disciplinary action as a student. C.S. Lewis once said that the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones that are argued, but the ones that are assumed. 
And one of the things we need to know when it comes to our students in this particular cultural moment and children in this cultural moment is that in many of corners of our culture, especially in the educational arena, there are very uh, significant uh, ideas that are no longer being argued. They're no longer up for debate. They're just being widely assumed. Here's what the conclusion is. And the most significant area in my mind in which ideas are being widely assumed that have such deep consequential, um, um, that are so deeply consequential, let's just put it that way, is in the realm of identity. What does it mean to be human? And in particular, what does it mean to be human in relation to what I feel on the inside and who my body says that I am on the outside? And how do we actually balance that? And it's a really strange moment we live in because in some corners, certain parts of our physical bodies, for example, our ethnicity, the color of our skin, is assumed to be the defining aspect of who we are, the most defining aspect of who we are, one that actually determines almost everything about us. But when it comes to our chromosomes and our hormones, and the parts of our bodies that represent whether we are male or female, then that in and of itself is up for grabs. Isn't that a strange irony in which we live? You guys remember there was a, a story out of North Carolina a couple years ago having to do with bathrooms. Does that ring a bell? Remember the whole bathroom conversation in North Carolina? What a mess that was. In the, uh, the, the public hearings about that, a child psychologist from Duke University uh, testifying in that whole uh, lawmaking process in the court case there in which the, I think it was the city of Charlotte sued the state or something like that. Here's what this child psychologist from Duke University said, that when it comes uh, to determining sex and gender, let me see if I can paraphrase this right. Let me, let me, let me put it this way. She goes, when it comes to who we are, our chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, and external genitalia are not scientifically reliable means to determine sex and gender. She wasn't talking emotionally. She wasn't talking about how you feel. She actually said chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, external genitalia, are not scientific ways to determine sex and gender. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? What does that mean about our bodies? One of the things that's widely assumed is that the body itself is just part of reality that is completely up for grabs according to the human will. Let me say that again. The thing that's being assumed, we could talk about assumptions that are being made about gender, assumptions that are being made about race and ethnicity, assumptions that are being made about class and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, the underlying confusion is that the human body itself has been made something that is completely pliable and moldable according to our internal desires, according to how we think 
we want to be, how we feel we want to be. Uh, Carl Truman, uh, who's a professor at Grove City College, has written a book uh, that's really helpful. It's, it's really dense, and thankfully he wrote it uh, kind of an academic version and a not-so-academic version. The academic version is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in it, he identifies that in this late stage of the sexual revolution, the thing that we're really wrestling with as a culture is what he calls expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is this idea that who we are is whatever we express ourselves to be. So the number one job we all have as humans is not to recognize what is real, it's not to adjust our lives to what are any givens in the universe, but it is to express whoever we want to be. And the number two job that all of us have is to accept everyone else's expression of whoever they want to be. Now do you understand what this means? In other words, who we are at our most fundamental level is assumed to be completely disconnected from anything fixed, anything given, anything solid, anything standard. In other words, we are now trying to do life in the world. Not just personal moral decision making, but all of life in the world culturally, relationally, family, at the level of the state, top to bottom, as if there is no fixed reference point by which to orient at all. It's kind of like what we're trying to do as a culture is have everyone find their way out of the wilderness of confusion, giving them a compass that always points at them. Why does a compass work? This is, yeah, why does a compass work? It always points north. Now, this is important because some of you are thinking because it tells you which way to go. No, it doesn't. If you just always follow wherever the arrow goes, it could be wrong. You would just be getting colder and colder and colder. In other words, it always points where? North. Why? Because it points to something fixed and unchanging that's outside of you. Does that make sense? But imagine that you're trying to find your way out of the jungles of Columbus and we give you a compass and everywhere you turn around that compass is pointing at you. Right? No matter where you go, you're the North Pole. If you're the North Pole, you're going to be always lost. Right? In other words, there has to be something fixed by which to orient our sense of identity, our sense of meaning, our understanding of truth, and even things like beauty and justice and all the other big eternal concepts that we have to wrestle with because we're human beings. But what we have now is a culture that's untethered itself from anything fixed and unchanging. And so therefore, it's completely up for grabs. Even the most observable realities. It's an amazing time to be a Christian, by the way, if you're a follower of Christ, because we have entered a new era of apologetics, of what it means to present a compelling gospel to the world. You know, the whole 20th century was basically, in a sense, Christianity fighting against becoming scientifically disproven. So we would talk about how we know miracles can happen, and we, you know, we were accused of being so esoteric and feeling-centric and otherworldly-minded. You remember that old saying, you Christians are so heavenly-minded, you know what? earthly good. That was the whole 20th century. Now we're at the beginning of the 21st century and we're the ones going, hey, you have a body, you have parts and they matter. Christianity right now has a task of being a profound testament and witness to the reality of creation. 
that there is a God, not only that there is a God who created the world, but there's a world that was created by God. And that includes our bodies. That's the first story. Here's the second story. The second story has to do with a conversation that I had back in June with a friend of mine who is a resident of a city in the Northeast that I will leave unnamed, but it was Boston. And uh, this woman is a, is a wonderful uh, theologian in, in, in the Roman Catholic uh, Church. Uh, she's a brilliant lady. And she was telling me as we were having this conversation about a friend of hers who teaches in the public school system there in Boston. And she teaches junior high. So my friend asked her friend and said, well, how many students in your junior high class identify as LGBTQ? The response was not just a response. You have to understand, it came with a tone of voice. Do you know what I mean? Like a, you should have already known this and why would you be asking such a silly, obvious question tone of voice? You see what I'm saying? So let me kind of role play here. How many kids in your class identify as LGBTQ? And the response was, oh, all of them do. Well, she said, what do you mean all of them do? Like everyone? She said, oh yeah, every one of them does. She's like, how can they all identify as LGBTQ? Are they having sex? No, 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 most of them, no, no. Maybe one or two of them are having sex, but no, they're not having sex. Well, if they're not having sex, why are they identifying as LGBTQ? And her answer was, oh, because none of them want to be straight. Fast forward six weeks later, I'm in Kentucky. Kentucky is not in Boston. All right, I just wanted you to get the, you know, Kentucky's not that far from here. Let's just put it that way. And I learned of a friend of a fr- another friend of a friend. This friend of a friend is a youth pastor at a pretty conservative denomination church, but a large church outside of one of the bigger cities in Kentucky, which, as we all know, is not saying much. I'm not saying that to be offensive. It was Lexington. It's a great city. It's just not that big. Fair enough. This youth pastor told my friend that all the boys in the junior high class that he leads identifies as bi. Bi? He's like, are they having sex? No, they're not having sex. Well, why would they identify as bi? And the answer was the same. Because none of them want to be straight. You have to understand that a lot of times ideas are complicated by other ideas. And we've got two ideas colliding right now that are creating some really challenging things for our students. And if we're going to teach them to love God's creation and to believe God when God looked at all that he had made and he said, behold, it is good, then we're going to have to reckon with two things. Not only this really bad idea that we're untethered from our bodies, and the only thing that's true about us is whatever we impose in terms of our inner self on the outer world, but there's also something that I'll call, and what we've called around the Colson Center at work here, called a critical theory mood. Now, when you hear the word critical theory, because of the conversations we've had in America for the last little bit, you're probably thinking critical race theory. That's not what I'm talking about. A critical race theory can be a form of critical theory. But the problem with critical race theory right now is that anytime some people, the conversation of race comes up, they just think that somebody's being a critical race. That's not true. We have to have hard conversations about race in America. It still do. It's absolutely true. We've got to have them. The problem is, is that the critical theory mood that's framing that conversation is framing all kinds of other conversations. 
And critical theory is this academic theory, really has its root, roots in legal theory, although it comes out of the postmodernist family, that basically says that this culture is everything about us. So we belong to particular groups of people. And particular groups of people should be placed in one of two categories, either an oppressor category or an oppressed category. And be based on which category you're placed in, uh, not only are you either an oppressor or an oppressed, but also you have, a, you have a degree of moral guilt or you have a degree of moral superiority, not based on who you are, not based on how you've behaved, not based on what you believe, not based on what you've done or how you've treated anybody else, but simply because of the group of person that you belong to. Does that make sense? Uh, I'll put this a different way. The problem with CRT is not the fact that the conversation talks about the R. <laughs> the problem with CRT is that the CT framing of the R conversation completely takes it out of any constructive place to go. And by the way, CRT was so 2020, the conversation today is critical queer theory. And it's been such a, an effective cultural narrative that all the junior hires are ahead of us. When my friend asked her friend, why do they all identify as LGBTQ? Do you remember what the answer was? Because none of them want to be straight or none of them want to be cis. Do you know what the word cis is? Do you know what that refers to? Who here knows? Who here doesn't know? Who's tired? Okay, I was just wondering. <laughs> cis is short for cisgender. Cisgender is the newest made up word that we have. No, it is. It's a word that probably doesn't need to exist, um, but it is a word that refers, and this is the a formal definition, and you can hear, uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, if words aren't worth fighting for, what on earth would be? This is an example. Think about everything that's kind of backloaded into this word cisgender. Cisgender is a word that means, the, that refers to those who continue to identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth. Did you, did you, let me say it again. Cisgender means those who continue to identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth. Now, what are some of the ideas that are being smuggled into that or assumed by that definition? Con continue to, yeah. And that, they, and that who they are is something that they've identified as, not something that they've recognized. What else? assigned not just gender that was assigned but what sex you see it used to be that we separated sex from gender sex was the hardware gender was the software sex was the body parts gender was however we express ourselves now the idea is that even sex is assigned not reflective of reality does that make sense so cisgender essentially refers to people who are um, uh, people who continue to identify as male and female in agreement with what the doctor first said. Fair enough? Okay. In other words, that refers to almost everyone who's ever lived. With exceptions, but very rare exceptions overall. Why do you have to have a word for the vast majority of people and not just the exceptions? Do you understand the question? Why does there need to be a word for both? Sorry? It, yeah, so in other words, it allows you to marginalize it. Otherwise, you're saying normal and abnormal, and that's not okay. Do you see what I'm saying? 
So they both become categories of equal moral weight. But the problem is the CT conversation has now affected the cultural imagination. Most people have never read a critical theorist. But see, ideas don't just come to us in books, they come to us in cultural moods. I'll give you an example. 25 years ago when I first started talking about worldviews and comparing different worldviews, one of the worldviews we started to talk a lot about at the time was postmodernism. Postmodernism is the intellectual heritage of a group of French philosophers, guys like Jacques Derrida, uh, Michel Foucault, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, things like that. Really unfortunate name, by the way. Um, and, um, and, 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 one of the, and you would talk about you know, this, this worldview of postmodernism, which is reality is a social construct, there's no givens in life, uh, truth is whatever we say it is, reality is whatever we say that it is, and we say that it is because our own way of thinking is socially constructed. And people would say, no, postmodernism is not really a big deal because no one's ever read Derrida, and no one's ever really read Foucault. And, they're right. No one really had read Derrida because it was impossible um, to understand him. And, you know, Foucault had his own issues and so on. But we didn't need to read them. You know why? Because we had Kurt Cobain and Britney Spears. Does that make sense? In other words, we lived in a postmodern moment in the 90s. How many of you guys remember the 90s? Let me start. How many of you guys remember pop culture in the 90s? Okay, so you remember there was a real postmodern moment that shaped the way that we think. We don't have most people, I'm sorry, we, we don't have a world in which most people have really engaged the critical theorists. We do have a world, however, in which there's a critical theory mood where we don't just divide people up into categories based on random characteristics or not random characteristics, but, but, but groupings of people but we also assign those groupings of people moral status. And if you say this is all new to you, it is, but for the junior hires in Boston and apparently outside of Lexington, Kentucky, they've caught that mood. There are good guys and bad guys, and guess who the good guys are? And, and you, you go back to the remarkable words uh, of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in which he said that he dreamed of that day when we would not be judged by the color of our skin but by the content of our character. What critical theory does on the racial question is that it does the exact opposite. It assigns guilt based, it assumes the content of character by the color of skin. But, but critical theory itself is doing that based on sexual orientation, gender identity, and all kinds of other groupings, immigration status. I mean, you can just kind of go down the line. People are grouped up based on who they belong to, and then moral status is assigned. And if you don't think that that's a compelling belief to you, it is the water that our kids swim in right now. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, how are we doing on time? We doing good? Okay. Should I ask them that, not just you? Okay. All right. All right let me give you the third story. The third story is one that I just heard a few weeks ago, and it almost um, break my heart. You, you, you might realize if you follow Breakpoint, um, or of course Breakpoint this week with Maria Bear. Um, with an occasional word in by John Stone Street. Um, I'm kidding. Um, then, you know, we talk about a lot of stories. We talk a lot of stories. So, so when you deal with so many stories in culture, like we do, and we try to help Christians make sense of these cultural stories, then it is a, uh, you know, it's rare that you come across a story that really just knocks you on your back. 
I was uh, privileged to host an event, which you can still find online, by the way, with our friends at the Alliance Defending Freedom and the Heritage Foundation and a number of other people. It was an event called Promise to America's Parents. And the Promise to America's Parents was trying to address something that this story reveals. And I just didn't realize quite to the point, extent in which it had gotten. It's the story of Abigail Martinez, who immigrated from Mexico with her family. Her daughter um, grew up, was always very princessy, uh, you know, always very loved the Disney princess stories, very frilly, loved to spin around, that sort of thing. This is how she told the story that day at this event that I hosted and or emceed. And um, when she hit junior high, she, she started to struggle. Anybody here have a... A, a, a daughter that hit junior high and started to struggle with who they are. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of part of the gig, right? And guys do it too, uh, but girls have unique challenges, I think. They tend to. And, um, and Abigail's daughter was no different. What had happened, though, she was in a school district in California that had already decided certain things about mental health challenges and struggles. And so when her, she sought help for her daughter, go talk to the school counselor, her daughter did. And at that point, the counselor stepped in between Abigail's daughter and Abigail and started to convince Abigail's daughter that really the issue that was at root behind her depression, something that according to Abigail, she had never seen in her daughter before, was the fact that she had been born into the wrong body and that she really was uh, a boy and that she would be happier and at peace if she identified as a boy. Um, Abigail's daughter started to believe this and would go to school and present herself uh, as a boy, chose a boy's name, and kept it from Abigail for a long time until the point came when Abigail figured out what was happening, that essentially the school counselor, uh, without the knowledge of Abigail, without her permission certainly, was leading Abigail's daughter down the path of what's called a social transition. The social transition is a first step that leads then to chemical intervention and then uh, long-term surgical um, or permanent surgical options. And so Abigail's daughter, when Abigail found out about it, was already calling herself by a new name, of course, the, you know, hairstyle, and then also dress, and then all of a sudden, Abigail realized what was happening and went to the school counselor to try to get some answers. The school counselor basically said that um, you're, you need to be on board with this, because if you aren't on board with this, then you will be responsible for your daughter's death. You will be responsible for her taking her own life. It reached the point because Abigail decided not to uh, affirm the counselor's opinion and not to affirm her, her daughter's struggles uh, that the school then even went so far as to report Abigail to Child Protective Services. Child Protective Services came in and in an emergency sort of decision because Abigail's daughter, even though she was following the treatment path, so-called treatment path of the school, so that she wouldn't kill herself, had become suicidal. So Abigail's daughter went to a resident home where she lived out the rest of her high school years there. And 
uh, Abigail's mom was allowed to go see, sorry, Ab Abigail was allowed to go see her daughter an hour a week and was told by the center there that she was not allowed to talk about her faith because that wasn't affirming and she wasn't allowed to talk about anything that wasn't affirming of her daughter's new uh, gender transition. A year or two after high school, after continuing down that path, Abigail's daughter committed suicide. Abigail was told that she would be the cause of her daughter's suicide if she prevented her daughter from going through all of these so-called treatments. In reality, the treatments did not actually take her any further towards peace, but actually led her further into a sense of dysphoria from who she was, and she ended up taking her own life. I heard that story, and I was just blown away, because it's one thing for these ideas to be out there. It's another thing for these ideas to be weaponized by the state to step in between the relationship between a parent and a child. That may not be the case in Ohio right now. It is the case in certain parts of the country. Right now, for example, I was in Michigan last week. They're wrestling with a, 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 something on the ballot here at the election called Prop 3. Have you heard about it? Do you guys know what's happening in Michigan, the Prop 3? It has to do with uh, 20 or so odd pro-life laws that are on the books having predated Roe v. Wade. Well, Roe v. Wade gets uh, overturns all of those or puts a stop to all of those 20-some pro-life laws, and now the... Um, uh, then these 20-some laws should be back in effect, but they were put on stay by the court and so on. And so Prop 3 is a radical pro-abortion law that would enshrine abortion rights into the state constitution at the constitutional level for the state of Michigan. But not only that, it's, you, it, it's done in the language of reproductive rights with no age limitations and no ability for any uh, people of authority to interfere with reproductive decisions. So one could quickly see if a girl is pregnant, then the parent cannot interfere. But also because of that category of reproductive rights, one could see that if a child wanted to transition from a boy to a girl, then also the parent could not interfere there too. Th do you see what I'm saying? In other words, one of the features of Abigail's story which made me realize that the ideas about identity and the ideas about uh, the, the critical theory mood that's shaping how this conversation is happening in our culture, that there now is a level of state enforcement that is really should be concerning. And there's going to be, I think, a calling for parents right now uh, as much as possible to not sit this one out. When I heard Abigail's story, at that point, my mind was reeling how we could reach a point in the United States where the state could step into a parent's role. But then Abigail was asked one more question. And this is what sent me over the edge to a new level of um, dismay. She was asked, how did your church respond when you were going through this challenge. And Abigail said that when she would go see her daughter for that one hour a week of prescribed visitation, her daughter would ask her, does such and such know that I'm here? Is he coming to visit me? 
she was asking about her youth pastor because her youth pastor, she felt that she was really connected to. And she wanted her youth pastor to know that she was there. And she wanted her youth pastor to come see her and to pray with her and to talk with her. This was the daughter. And so every week, according to Abigail, Abigail's daughter would ask her, does he know that I'm here? Is he coming to see me this week? The youth pastor never once came. The pastor never once reached out to Abigail. My emotions then became something different. It wasn't anymore that I, it, it, was, it wasn't just that I was kind of perplexed and how do we reach this state as a nation. Suddenly it became a level of anger that I just really wasn't comfortable with because I had to get up right after the story and see it. And I'm just like, how on earth? No one should ever, ever have to go through what that mom went through. Fair enough? And good heavens, no one should ever have to go through it alone. N.T. Wright uh, once said that Christians don't always get to choose what they care about. Because we live in a cultural moment where certain things are uh, critical issues. Maybe that weren't for other generations. We are living in one of those times. In particular, if we live in a cultural moment in which the state is stepping in between parents and children, one of the things that these parents need are churches who will step up and be, walk alongside with them. Does that make sense? We cannot allow each other to go through this alone. We need to be together. That's why there's going to be such an increased um, significance to Christian schools like Tree of Life. I don't know if you've heard about this, but all across America, non-state-sponsored education, uh, educational institutions are full and overflowing. That includes Christian schools. This is the greatest opportunity for Christian education in our lifetime to make an incredible dent. Let's lean in and support them. Right now, we know, particularly after the Dobbs decision, uh, that a lot of the political things that used to be the purview of the U.S. Supreme Court or the White House or the U.S. Congress has moved to the state level. That's why groups like CCV are so absolutely critical, right? And we all, if we're going to stand beside each other, we need to know what it is that we believe. We need to know why it is that we believe what we believe. And we need to be able to stand with each other in a way that can speak truth, that can, speak truth, that can love, that can support, and can, and can help each other. Does that make sense? In other words, right now is a moment for Christians to lean into cultural engagement. And that means every Christian. Don't think you should outsource this job you know, to Aaron or to, you know, Jim, you know, Jim Dobson or somebody like that. Like it is all of our jobs to wrestle and help each other through this particular cultural moment. <laughs> <laughs>